welcome to Weekend Warriors, the foreign policy podcast that asks what else is happening in the world. I'm Essie Cup. Well, what else is happening is a humanitarian and refugee crisis as a bargaining chip, basically. Civilians being used as pawns for strong men to get what they want. This isn't, you know, some dystopian sci-fi movie from the 80s. This is really happening right now in Europe. I know we're all scared about corona. We're talking about the election. But what's happening in Syria and Turkey and Greece is unlike anything else. And it's another shameful consequence of the Syrian civil war. On Thursday, just to bring you guys up to speed, Turkey and Russia agreed to a ceasefire to end their hostilities in Syria. But it comes after a million people have fled the region in three months. And now because of that mass exodus of refugees, Turkey is embroiled in a proxy fight with the EU. You see, Turkey is home to three and a half million Syrian refugees. In 2016, Turkey made a deal with the EU to halt migrants traveling from the Middle East to Europe. The deal was always fragile, with Turkey arguing long after that they'd been shouldering the burden alone. They're not wrong. Now, after an attack by the Syrian regime killed three dozen Turkish soldiers last month, the Erdogan government tore up the agreement, essentially, opening Turkey's borders to Europe, saying the country would no longer stop refugees from attempting to cross by land or sea into Greece because Turkey had, quote, reached its capacity. Now, the move isn't just a way for Turkey to pressure EU to help more on the refugee end. Turkey's also using this as leverage to garner support for its military operations in Syria against Bashar al-Assad's forces, who are backed by Russia and Iran. So from a cold, calculated policy perspective, sure, maybe immigration brinksmanship will, will work. But so far, it has not swayed Greece, where the prime minister is calling this an illegal invasion. Where does that sound familiar? And called Turkey a trafficker. As thousands of migrants gather at Turkey's northern border, Greece refused to open its side. That has led to clashes with Greek security forces, as some refugees try to make the cross on water on overcrowded makeshift boats. And predictably, Monday, a child died after one such boat carrying 48 people capsized off of one of the Greek islands. Now, it's a policy disagreement in the headlines and in the government buildings, but on the ground, this isn't just political bickering or a war of words. It's another humanitarian nightmare in a decade of nightmares for people who have nothing to do with the fighting. Joining me to discuss is CNN national security analyst Samantha Vinograd. Um, Sam, let's start with the ceasefire. Will will it hold? You know, Russia's violated several previous ones. I think it's highly unlikely the ceasefire is going to hold based upon uh, Russia and Syria's track record of violating these agreements almost as soon as they're signed. That said, I get some comfort in the fact that there's a ceasefire at all just so that the people in northwest Syria maybe can get a night of sleep, maybe can try to find food or shelter or clothing. 
And maybe if the ceasefire holds for a few days, some of the humanitarian corridors can be reopened. Right. Or some of the humanitarian workers on the ground in and around Idlib can get assistance to those in need. You know, I I have spoken to the U.S. one for UNICEF and the IRC. They can't get humanitarian assistance, even that's at the border or within northwest Syria, to those in need because their own staff are under attack. It is not safe for the delivery of humanitarian assistance. So do I think the ceasefire is going to hold? Hold Definitively not. I'm hopeful. I am praying that it provides some respite so that humanitarian assistance can get delivered where it's needed. Well, talk about the conditions for these Syrian migrants, if, if people aren't aware what they are going through right now. This is kind of a macabre game of Goldilocks for any Syrian right now. There are no good options if you live in Syria generally or in northwest Syria. Uh, I was with Syrian refugees um, in Jordan a few months ago who were telling me that their decision-making process was really bleak. The decision is either to stay and to risk getting hit by a Syrian air attack, Mm -hmm. getting assaulted by Assad forces, or being the victim of a terrorist attack. So stay and you may die. Choice B, flee and remain displaced within Syria. There are tens of thousands of displaced Syrians within the country right now, or flee and risk dying. Uh, Trying to make the journey from northwest Syria, in this case from Idlib all the way up to Turkey, comes at enormous risk, particularly during the winter months uh, where children are freezing to death. Um, Many of them uh, don't have clothing. There's nothing left to burn and they don't have food. And they're stuck at the border. There's nowhere to go. Turkey won't take them. So they're in this gray zone of being on the run and risking dying just because staying where they were is deemed as more dangerous. And then finally, as the, the other the other option here, even if you're lucky enough to make it across the border, is to be stuck in limbo in a refugee camp or to try to make your way to Europe. Uh, there are not options for refugees right now. The United States government under this administration has washed its hands of these people, full stop. Not only have we withdrawn forces from Syria that were frankly serving as a, as a deterrent, mm-hmm for um, involved parties, Turkey, Russia, Iran, and Assad, from going at it the way that they are right now. But we've also washed our hands when it comes to refugees. We are calling on um, those in Europe to take more Syrian refugees, saying they should do their part. Well, guess what? I think we're on track to take a couple hundred uh, Syrian refugees this year. So we have walked away. And it's, it's worth putting this in context. The war in Syria has displaced more than 11 million people. Think about the entire city of Jakarta, Indonesia, or New York City mm-hmm. and Los Angeles combined. That's the scale of the problem that we're talking about here. And even if the war stops today, those 11 million people are not getting education yeah. uh, for the most part. They're lacking uh, medical services. This is going to be an albatross that is going to hang over future generations. And as much as President Trump wants to turn his back and say, well, Syria is you know, a sandbox. It's not for us. This is going to affect U.S. national security for generations to come. Yeah. I mean, the consequences are far reaching. They have been far reaching since the second this thing started, given where Syria is, who was going to prop them up, who was going to take advantage of the vacuum. All of this stuff was fairly predictable. And yet I'm not sure I would have predicted it would have gotten as bad as it has. And you and I have watched it get very very bad over the years. 
Um, flashing back to, to Europe, do you think that Greece will capitulate? Do you think that that there's any there's any coerce, coercing Europe to open? Well, I was appalled, uh, to put it lightly, um, to hear the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, say earlier today, don't go to the border. The border is not open, mm-hmm. basically saying we won't take you. So I think that any solution to the refugee crisis from a European perspective is going to have to start with some EU-level agreement. At, at this point, the EU foreign policy chief is saying quite bluntly, no, this is not going to happen. And while all of that is ongoing, we have obviously, as we just discussed, the refugees currently in Turkey and in Europe. We also have um, more refugees, you know, trying to get out because this ceasefire, which we started with, Essie, is not going to hold. We have Russia sending, I think, six warships uh, near to Syria in the last week alone. The, both sides are buckling down. And these refugees um, or they, the folks still in Syria are just doing anything possible to get out. So absent some magic wand that we can wave over the EU foreign policy chief, I think we're going to see the status quo cemented for the time being, which is millions of people um, trying to get somewhere and stuck hitting a wall. And the United States saying this, this isn't our problem. All of you figure it out. While, of course, um, overall, the situation cont- continues to deteriorate within Syria. And longer term, as the, you know, the UN has been on record uh, on this, but The warring parties in Syria, Turkey, Russia, and Assad, have all been accused of potential war crimes. We haven't just refused to take refugees. We haven't just withdrawn our troops. We have failed to hold accountable the perpetrators of war crimes in Syria, whether it was the Russians and the Syrians with chemical weapons, um, the Turks' uh, alleged war crimes against our partners, the Kurds. So as we think about this crisis, think about what it means that the new normal warfare in the 21st century is rampant war crimes and no accountability. Yeah, it's it's scary. And, um, you know, I called it dystopian earlier. It truly is. I mean, I, I don't recognize the world. I don't recognize us right now when I I read these stories, look at these images, see the footage, talk to these humanitarian groups. I don't recognize us. Um, Trump and Erdogan, meanwhile, met this week. What, if any, impact did that have, do you think, on, on the current situation, the ceasefire? That's right. Trump and Erdogan, I believe, spoke by phone uh, earlier this week. In advance of Erdogan meeting uh, with another man uh, that he tends to bromance with, which is Vladimir Putin, Turkey is a NATO ally of the United States. They have the second largest military in NATO. Um, and at this point, the United States has been on record, whether it's Ambassador James Jeffrey, the special envoy for Syria uh, over at the State Department, the DOD, the president, the, the whole U.S. government has um, switched from criticizing Turkey uh, and warning Turkey, for example, not to hurt the Kurds and mm. um, really lambasting Turkey for their purchase of Russian air defense systems, which are illegal under U.S. law, um, We've really just kind of pretty quickly uh, gone to being Turkey's biggest supporter when it comes to Syria. Uh, and I think that part of President Trump's calculus with Erdogan um, and speaking with him this week was to prop him up to start to explore how the United States could support Turkey militarily in Syria. I mean, think about how zany that is. Again, just a few weeks ago, we were trying to, frankly, beseech the Turks. We don't have much leverage. 
not to massacre the Kurds, but now we are considering giving them enhanced military support so that they can fight our war for us to a large extent, right? I mean, they are, to a certain degree, keeping the Russians at bay in Syria and directly fighting Assad, something that we were not willing to do. So in the coming uh, week or so, I would anticipate more conversations between Trump and Erdogan, um, because Erdogan is likely going to be asking for things like Patriot batteries, potentially more ammunition, and or some other kind of direct military support. It does not seem likely at this point that President Trump is going to recommit U.S. troops to support the Turks in Syria, but I think he's going to do everything he can to support Erdogan, again, fighting the Russians and fighting the Syrians, a war that uh, or engagement that President Trump was not willing to take on himself. So I, just to drill down a little bit, what does it mean that basically we and, and, and Syrians are relying on two world leaders like Trump and Erdogan, potentially, <laughs> to, to, to sort this out? This is demagogues duking it out, mm-hmm. and it comes with all of the costs associated with that. We have two demagogues, uh, President Erdogan and President Putin, who are going to con- continue fighting each other. And excuse me, I, three demagogues. I left out uh, Bashar al-Assad. Right. This, is, this is a playpen for psychopaths, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have men motivated by self-interest or national interest, whatever they're going to assign to it, who, who are willing to do anything it takes to achieve their national security objectives. International law thrown out the door, right? I mean, that's that's just gone by the wayside. So what we can expect at this point is as these demagogues duke it out, any human life within Syria right now is conveniently for, for the demagogues a bargaining chip. Yeah. Um, Erdogan will do anything it takes to prevent more Syrians from going into Turkey, which in, currently includes uh, hitting Syrian um, airplanes and soldiers. To date, he has not directly hit Russian aircraft. That that would be viewed as more of an escalation, but I wouldn't rule it out. He'll do anything it takes. And Assad, backed by Iran and Vladimir Putin, again, Putin has sent reinforcements to Syria in the past couple of days. Mm-hmm. He's not backing down. Uh, they will do anything it takes to drive out the quote-unquote terrorists, they label anyone they don't like the terrorists, and to retake all of Syria absent perhaps some of these observation posts where there are are Turkish soldiers. Mm. So as these demagogues do what they do best, which is engage in brutal tactics, they are normalizing, again, a new phase in warfare in the 21st century. No rules, no accountability, and anything goes without, frankly, the international community doing much much to stop them. We We are not just keeping silent at this point. We're really condoning what they're doing by failing to hold them accountable, Um, failing to give uh, these refugees a place to go, failing to hold them accountable at the International Court of Justice or at the United Nations, just anything to voice our displeasure aside from, you know, some some statements uh, to the press or something of that nature. A playpen for psychopaths. I mean, that paints a picture. Uh, Sam Vinograd, thanks so much for joining me on Weekend Warriors, as always. Thanks, Betsy. And thank you all for listening. I'm Essie Cup. Be sure to catch me on Unfiltered Saturdays at 6 p.m. on CNN. Until then, we'll see you next time.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 